This episode of the Practical Guidance Labor and Employment Series, we speak with attorney Tim Taylor. Tim is a practical guidance author and an employment and litigation attorney at Holland and Knight's Virginia office. Today we'll be discussing some recent key decisions in the area, including the Harvard College Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, and the case Groff v. DeJoy, which is a decision involving Title VII and religious freedom. I'm your host, Kevin Hilton. I'm an attorney with LexisNexis. To learn more about LexisNexis Practical Guidance Research Solutions, visit Lexis.com. Lexis Practical Guidance gives you insights to support what you do. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me for the Practical Guidance podcast today. I wonder if you'd just start by telling me a little bit about your practice. Uh, Sure. Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be on. Uh, My name is Tim Taylor. I am a partner at Holland & Knight LLP. Uh, I was born and raised as an associate here, and then I took about um, three or four years and went into the government, uh, mostly at the Department of Labor, where I held several senior positions, including chief of staff and what's called the deputy solicitor uh, or the deputy general counsel of labor. Uh, And after my government service, I returned to Holland and Knight, where I practice uh, labor and employment law, as well as uh, litigation and investigations as well. Well, thank you for your time today and expertise. Uh, we're going to be talking about a couple different issues, but we're going to start by talking a little bit about the Harvard affirmative action case. Um, and I wondered if you would just give some context. Uh, I'm sure many of you listeners out there have heard about this case and probably done some reading, but I wondered if, Tim, if you could just give some context to the case. Uh, and, and- uh, sure, absolutely. So the case is Students for Fair Admissions uh, versus uh, Presidents and Fellows of Harvard College. Again, there's been lots of popular media attention to this, plenty of legal media attention to this, Uh, and essentially what this uh, case involved was, um, again, these affirmative action cases have been going on before the Supreme Court um, for literally 50 years, Um, but this was the the blockbuster case where a Supreme Court finally, for all intents and purposes, held that affirmative action uh, is is unconstitutional in the context of higher education. Uh, When it looked at the uh, um, at the racial preferences and admissions uh, at these two universities. It was both uh, Harvard on the private side as well as uh, the University of North Carolina, uh, which is a public institution. Uh, it determined that those uh, admissions policies as written and as implemented violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment uh, by making impermissible distinctions on the basis of race without sufficient justification. So in very broad brushstrokes, that's, uh, that's the overview of the case. Um, but I think we're here to talk about potentially some, some implications for labor and employment. The case obviously was dealing with both public and private institutions from what you're saying. So how does this extend, um, and I imagine in many ways, into, the, uh, into, into employer um, responsibilities and impact? Sure, sure. Uh, and again, there is commentary on this that has ranged the gamut from this decision uh, was strictly to dealing with uh, higher education and admissions policies. It has you know, no implications for employment, all the way to uh, other uh, commentators and politicians saying it has tremendous implications. So I, I think that um, overall, the, the underlying uh, framework here would be Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, right? which says that employers cannot discriminate on the basis of race and various other protected characteristics um, in their employment, hiring, firing, conditions of employment, uh, which goes beyond hiring and firing into other things as well. And I think it's really well encapsulated, the two schools of thought on this, uh, from two EEOC commissioners. 
So I'd like to read uh, what, the, what the chair, Charlotte Burroughs, has to say about it, and then one of the Republican-appointed commissioners, Andrea Lucas, so you can see the contrast here. Uh, so Chair Burroughs says this. Uh, uh, this, is, this is part of her statement after the decision came down. She said, uh, the decision in the case um, does not address employer efforts to foster diverse and inclusive workforces or to engage the talents of all qualified workers, regardless of their background. It remains lawful for employers to implement diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility programs that seek to ensure workers of all backgrounds are afforded equal opportunity in the workplace. Now, let me contrast that with uh, um, Commissioner Lucas's statement, um, where uh, she wrote this um, uh, in, an, in an opinion editorial. She says, companies seriously err if they evaluate their risk under federal employment law by mistakenly referring to now outdated standards for higher education admissions, which had approved of diversity-motivated affirmative action. And today's ruling only heightens those employers' practical risks by reemphasizing the Supreme Court's rejection of diversity, nebulous equity interests, or societal discrimination as justifying actions motivated even in part by race, sex, or other protected characteristics. Companies continuing down this path after today may violate federal anti-discrimination laws. So you see the, uh, the different oh views. <laughs> All right, Judge, uh, Judge Taylor, where do you... Where yeah, does it well, now? <laughs> well, so let's, let's talk about the practical implications for this, because again, right. if you're an employer... Right, and and this is what you're receiving. What do you do? Yeah. Um, so I think it's helpful to think about this landscape um, from several different angles because I think these different angles present different kinds of risks, and it depends somewhat on who's regulating you and what states you're in, and so on. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the EEOC itself, I mean, you have the statement from the chair. The EEOC recently confirmed. Uh, a third commissioner, so it has a functioning democratically appointed um, majority. And so I, I don't think that uh, companies are at very high risk, that the EEOC itself is going to be taking any action to go after them for um, diversity programs, equity programs, inclusion programs, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's probably true across the board. At, at other uh, federal agencies, for example, um, OFCCP, which regulates um, uh, anti-discrimination and affirmative action in the okay. federal contracting space. So that, so I think you can you can take those folks off the table at least you know for as long as the current majority remains in place, which will be quite a while. A different question I think is presented when it comes to state and local enforcement, because most states have of course, uh, civil rights laws that are patterned very closely after Title VII, and often they're construed, you know, in similar fashion to provide some uniformity to the law. Uh, there was a recent letter that was issued um, by, I'm not sure how many, some, somewhere between 10 and 20 Republican attorney generals to the Fortune 100 saying, hey, you know, we're looking closely at your diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And you better be sure that they comply uh, with, with the Supreme Court's ruling and the general provisions of anti-discrimination law. So in certain, you know, what we like to call red states, right, uh, companies may want to take a closer look at those programs. 
again, uh, in, in some ways, this is, this is divided along, I think, uh, different ideological philosophies. So maybe in blue states, there's less risk that way. Right. So a couple other aspects I think that employers need to consider here. One is, again, people can bring private lawsuits, right? Uh, you know, under Title Seven, you, sure. you always have to, you know, go through the EEOC right to sue process. But you know, anywhere, you know, anywhere, somebody can can bring a lawsuit, and who knows what a judge <laughs> will do right. with this ruling. Uh, and then maybe one final caution here, because we see these DEI programs extending not only uh, to employment practices, but also um, to things like uh, you know business dealings or uh, contracting, you know, one near and dear to my heart, of course, is, uh, you know, who are you going to choose as your law firm? And at least a few states, like New York and Maryland, actually have anti-discrimination protections that extend to contractors and the right to contract. And so you could see that potentially coming into play. If there are companies that have, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion programs that extend into their um, professional services or other contracting areas. So lots of things for employers to to be considering, again, not saying that any of this is, is permissible or impermissible or anything else, but they need to be looking really closely at this and start thinking hard about it. I guess it I depends guess on the state, the state that you're state in and, and where you're operating. And if you're across multiple state lines and the companies that you're working with as to kind of the advice that you're giving at this point, then is what we're saying. I, I think that's fair. And again, it's, it's not so much that, of course, federal law would change state by state, but when you're looking sure. at practical enforcement risk and practical litigation risk. Um, you know, of course, for good or for ill, geography and politics is going to play a role in that. I, I think one thing I would like to highlight is just some of the uh, particular practices that companies have been using okay. and that they may want to look at. Um, okay. And again, none of this is to say that any of this is, is uh, uh, suspect or at risk, but I think they should at least be taking a look at it to make sure that it is compliant. One is whether a company has things like mentoring programs, sponsorship programs, training programs um, that are based on protected characteristics. A another might be um, whether you are tying uh, compensation to the company achieving certain demographic goals or targets. Mm -hmm. um, and another would be if you have um, uh, diversity internship programs, diversity interview processes, and so on. And again, I'm not saying that any of those are improper by any means, but I think companies ought to be taking a look at them and seeing what the practical risks are with any of those. And a lot of this, right, the devil's in the details into how these right. are implemented, understand the intentions behind them. But as with many other things in the law, uh, execution counts for a lot. So Tim wanted to get a little bit into Groff uh, v. DeJoy. Um, at, would you tell me a little bit about this case that, um, that came up recently? Uh, sure. This is another case that um, was a long time coming. There was a case actually about 50 years ago called Transworld Airlines, where the Supreme Court stated, and I don't think necessarily held, but stated that when it comes to accommodating an employee's religious practice, okay, somebody who needs to take a, a Sabbath off, somebody who wears religious clothing in the workplace, mm -hmm. somebody who has some kind of practice that has an impact in the workplace, um, that case was construed over time to mean that an employer can deny that religious accommodation if it's any more than a de minimis burden on the employer, right? You know, if it was virtually any kind of inconvenience, they should need not be um, um, honored. 
And so Groff v. DeJoy took up that part of the law, which I think in some ways was somewhat anomalous when you compare it especially to the obligation to do much more to accommodate disability and clarified that no, 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 no. Um, it's, it can't be and it is not a de minimis standard. There needs to be a real undue hardship to the employer um, uh, to deny an employee's religious accommodation. So that's, that's again, the, the very broad brush, high level overview of the case. And I think this will have a real practical impact in a lot of areas. Um, when the court says, you know, no, you have to accommodate an employee's religious practice unless it's a undue hardship. And that means a substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of your particular business under all the relevant factors. And so small, minor costs, the court said things like temporary costs, voluntary shift swapping or an occasional shift swap or administrative costs, those don't count. It has to be a real big deal. You gotta accommodate the religious employees. And so you can see how that that's just gonna play out in you know, across the country as employers now have to engage, I think, in a, in a much more extensive uh, interactive process with religious employees um, to try to, uh, to, to accommodate um, their practices. And it's going to raise a lot of, I think, interesting and potentially difficult questions, depending on what those practices are and their impact. Is this in any way a surprise uh, with the uh, court that, that's, that's uh, running it? That they came down um, this way? No, no, I, I don't. Not really. I think so. Um, there was a case they they cited it in their opinion. There was a case called Patterson v. Walgreen Company about three years ago, and I was at the Department of Labor at the time and was, huh. uh, you know, very tangentially involved with the Solicitor General's office on that, where this question had bubbled up. Um, but the facts in the case just weren't. Um, weren't very uh, helpful as a vehicle to raise this issue before the court. Uh, and so the Solicitor General ultimately recommended against it. Um, but again, I, I think that this had been kind of sticking out like a sore, sore thumb for a while. I think the surprise, and I think it's a, it's a nice surprise, is that the opinion was unanimous. Uh, I huh. think that most people anticipated that um, uh, the old standard would be modified. Um, I didn't I, I was a little surprised that it was, um, you know, unanimous. And it's always nice in our divided day and age to see the right. unanimously <laughs> uh, agree on anything. So that, I think, was probably the biggest surprise in it. But one thing that I would really highlight for employers here is uh, something that um, uh, the court took off the table as not counting as a cost. And that would be any sort of... Um, prejudice or hostility of fellow employees to a religious practice, right? Saying that, you know, even if your other employees don't like <laughs> the fact that a person has a religious practice or, you know, that could be dressing a certain way, that could be taking a break at a certain time of day, doing something that other employees maybe don't fully understand or is consistent with their experience. It says that does not count as an undue hardship or as a burden. Hmm. I think, and I imagine that would probably extend to, um, to customers as well, right? Um, that again, if you feel obligated by a religion to present yourself in a certain way, for instance, um, even if a customer might react in a, in a not positive way to that, that doesn't count as a burden. And that's, that's also consistent with Title VII more broadly, that 
customer prejudice or customer preference for certain uh, you know kinds of people you know never counts as a reason why you can discriminate. Uh, and I, I would imagine that would hold here as well. Tim, thank you again so much for your time and the insight you provided today. To learn more about Tim's practice at Holland and Knight, visit the firm's website. As a note, if you are enjoying these podcasts, please subscribe or follow the Labor and Employment Practice Area series you're listening to right now. Lexus also offers a rotating practice area series and a data privacy and cybersecurity series as well. All of these Practical Guidance podcasts can be found through your favorite podcast provider. And remember, no matter your practice area, if you need practical guidance on how to proceed in your work, check out Lexis Practical Guidance Research Solution, available now through Lexis. For more information, visit Lexis.com. Thanks, and be well.